Coming up today, Germany takes on Telegram and Matt Burgess dives deep inside a Russian ransomware gang. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when the New York Times bought puzzle game sensation Wordle for more than $1 million. The surprise purchase comes just weeks after Wordle was released by British software developer Josh Wardle. The game, which is now played by millions of people each day, was originally developed for an audience of just one, Wardle's girlfriend. It was also the week when snack supplier KP was hit by a ransomware attack. The companies warned that the supply of McCoys, hula hoops and various varieties of nut could be impacted. And finally, this was the week when Facebook suffered a $230 billion wipeout, which is the biggest one-day fall in history as the social media company's shares plunged by 26%. There was, a, there was a stat around this that Mark Zuckerberg's own personal fortune, which dropped by tens of billions of dollars, um, he lost the equivalent in personal riches to the entire GDP of the nation of Estonia. Do you think that's why he was crying on his video to his colleagues, <laughs> um, saying that he had something Maybe. in his eye? <laughs> something in my eyes. Sadness crying in the my billions. eyes. <laughs> what did we learn this week, Morgan? So this week I learned about the placebo effect and how it's actually been getting stronger in US drug trials. So one study found that in the 90s, real painkillers outperformed the placebo painkillers by 27%. But by 2013, that number had dropped to 9%, even though the effects of the painkillers were thought to have remained steady. What's more interesting is that European drug trials have not seen the same drop, and that's making people speculate that pharmaceutical advertising, which is legal on US TV, for example, is responsible for raising people's expectations of their medication, and that's what's making the placebo effect stronger. So there is an upside to really, really loose regulations on pharmaceutical advertising. Apparently so. But this is just a theory and I think it is disputed. So I'd be interested if anyone wants to write in with a different theory. This is, this is facts, Morgan, not theory. If you could uh, <laughs> fact check your fact and uh, come back next week. <laughs> uh, this week I learned, um, Matt Burgess made me learn something this week, which is very unfortunate because I'm bad at it. Um, all of the snow at the Beijing Winter Olympics is artificial, it turns out. In total, Beijing is using about 800 Olympic swimming pools worth of water to make 2 million cubic metres of snow. And apparently this is fairly common. So the 2008-2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea used about 90% artificial snow. Um, and a, a bonus bonus fact, in the coming years, 21 out of the 22 um, host cities for the Winter Olympics will no longer have a climate that is suitable for hosting a Winter Olympic Games. They'll be snow-free or too warm for a reliable supply of snow. Yay, climate change. There we go. Our first story this week, Natasha, is all about Telegram. Yeah, so uh, Morgan has been doing a deep dive into a rather fraught situation that's playing out in Germany at the moment, which started in a cold night in December. I assume it was cold because it was December, but we know it was night. And we know that several people were outside someone's house chanting away 
um, about anti-vax movements saying we shall not be moved or something equivalent in German. Morgan, can you tell us more? Yeah, so basically what happened is that at the start of December, a dozen anti-lockdown protesters gathered together in this kind of quiet, cobbled street in eastern um, Germany in a town called Grimma. Um, They were chanting, peace, freedom, no dictatorships. And they were directing these chants at a single house, which was the private home of the regional health minister, Petra Kirping. So this was quite a small protest against lockdown restrictions. Germany's actually seen protests of kind of tens of thousands of people. But it was quite shocking for Germany, a country where people usually accept that politicians have a right to privacy. And in a video of the event, you can see that the health minister is not prepared for the protest. Her her curtains are open. You can see people moving around inside the house. You can even see her Christmas lights kind of framing the window. Um, But what was even more sinister about the event was that the protesters were carrying those flaming torches um, that have become associated with far-right rallies from kind of the Ku Klux Klan to Nazi paramilitary parades. Um, So the whole event was nationally pretty unsettling. And in the aftermath, as politicians and the media were trying to kind of search for someone or something to blame, they started looking at Telegram, where a lot of anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine and coronavirus conspiracies were being shared. Uh, researchers had been warning for a few months that the content in these, in quite a lot of Telegram groups was getting more and more violent, and a lot of that violence was being directed towards politicians. Um, so just a few days after the protest, outside uh, the health minister's home, Armed German police said they searched five properties linked to a telegram group where members were discussing a plan to assassinate Saxony's prime minister in retaliation for his COVID restrictions. I suppose it's worth saying at this point that although many places around the world it's very, very fine to protest outside of politicians' official state homes, like you can go in the UK to number 10 Downing Street and stand outside and scream whatever you want. I'm sure you'll be cleared out after a while if you don't have a permit, but you can do that. Um, and that's where Boris Johnson lives and Rishi Sunak lives, who's the Chancellor. But but this is this was her personal home, right? It wasn't a state-owned home. It's simply where she lives. And, and the interesting thing about this is the whole Telegram movement, right? Because it is video circulating on mass group messages, her address circulating on mass group messages, death threats against her. Um, we, we've seen this sort of extreme content be very prolific on other sites, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook before. But if you look at social media usage in Germany, Telegram isn't exactly the most popular of the messaging apps out there. So why is it that anti-vaxxers have gravitated towards Telegram. Yeah, that's right. So Telegram is kind of, I think it's the sixth most popular messaging service in Germany. So WhatsApp is still by far the most popular. Um, But Telegram does still have about 8 million users. The difference is other social media companies like Facebook, like Twitter, they've been quite proactive at kicking out these kind of coronavirus conspiracy groups from their platform, uh, even though they have faced criticism. But Telegram has such a libertarian attitude to content moderation. Um, So that means that through the pandemic, the numbers kind of flocking there to talk about far right conspiracy theories have really exploded. So pre-pandemic, researchers told me the biggest far right figures or or kind of influencers on German Telegram had about 40,000 followers, but now that number is above 200,000. And researchers say they're surprised by how frequent the calls to violence are among these groups. Um, So Germany's actually had a bit of... People have been quite interested in Germany's anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine movement, because it's actually quite radical compared to other countries. And 
And it also kind of brings together quite a broad coalition of people. So the far right does play a central role, but they're sort of been seen marching alongside uh, what are described as eco-leftists, um, anti-vaxxers. Germany has a big alternative medicine community who can be quite um, anti-the vaccine and also conspiracy theorists. So people who believe in, in kind of global conspiracy ideas like QAnon to more local ones, such as the Reichsberger movement. Mm hmm. So the, all this has been kind of a uniting element for people who have extreme views on uh, the COVID vaccine. But if you look at Germany, right, you see there's a pretty low tolerance for very extreme views, despite freedom of expression laws, right? So they've cracked down on the use of Nazi symbols, on the use of hate speech. Uh, they've, burned, they've banned sort of certain right-wing assertions on being posted online. Yet Telegram seems to have been playing out all these groups online. They seem to have kind of been getting away with a lot of things without huge intervention up until now, right? So a lot of the people you were speaking to were saying, you know, they've been warning that Telegram is a problem, that things have been happening on this site for some time now but it was only when politicians were targeted themselves that they decided to do something about it um what exactly is 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 happening at the moment and how will this play out in the future yeah so uh, an anti-racism group i spoke to had quite a cynical take on why this is being tackled now so they they said they've been complaining about anti-semitic racist posts on telegram for, for years since kind of 2018 um, but then when the kind of target of these posts have shifted to politicians, authorities have become much more concerned, especially since a local politician was assassinated at his home in 2019 by a neo-Nazi. So it's, it's kind of been interpreted as a direct attack on democracy. Um, but Telegram has sort of been dodging those concerns. So throughout 2021, the Justice Ministry has been trying to contact the app because it hasn't been complying with Germany's online anti-hate speech law, the NetDG, which requires all social media platforms to take down content considered illegal in Germany. So that's swastikas or Holocaust denial. But Telegram is actually very difficult to reach. Uh, publicly, it says it's based in Dubai and company records point to an address in an office block there. But Germany's Justice Ministry hasn't been able to find anybody in that office block who it can deliver its letters to. And uh, this has been kind of such a, such a saga playing out in the German, in German public debate that lots of newspapers have sent their journalists to that Telegram office and found that nobody actually is in there and nobody's working there. And cleaning staff sort of report that they haven't seen anybody there since about 2019. Um, so this has been a problem that's brewing in the background for a while, but then there was a big change in government in December, a new coalition came into power and a new interior minister, Nancy Faeser, she seemed very kind of concerned with this. She made it her kind of personal mission to crack down on the app. Uh, so she threatened to ban Telegram outright. That was in one of the first interviews that she did with newspapers after her critics decried that solution as kind of not only impractical kind of how would you do that and uh, but also kind of possibly unconstitutional so after that she sort of changed tact and she started pressuring apple and google to remove the platform from their app from the app stores in order to kind of cut down on its reach um, then also in late January, Germany's federal police force launched a new task force uh, to monitor content on the app with the view of kind of hoping that will also help them crack down on it. So the scenario is that German's government is being ghosted by an international messaging platform and is somehow 
that's getting away with it. it. That seems completely insane. They should be sort of sending letters to an empty building, they're picking up the phone, no one answers. And, and nothing nothing is happening, even though the operations of, of Telegram and the influence of Telegram is, is global, right? It's, it's, it's this whole we can't find you where your HQ is. It doesn't make Germany's government look very sophisticated when it's trying to regulate a site that doesn't bother to answer any of its messages but it's it's, so it's decided to take a bit of a different tack right in your article you talk about how it decided to turn to google and apple for help how how can they help yeah so i think it's it's really interesting that they're sort of so powerless so they're sort of turning to the tech giants to kind of be like can you help us do something about telegram and they're doing this because Google and Apple have been able to influence Telegram before. So last summer, Germany sort of watched with kind of morbid fascinations as one of their celebrity chefs, a vegan chef called Attila Hildman, who was kind of like, he went on talk shows, he was kind of like a B-list celebrity. Uh, but he gradually became radicalised during the pandemic and this sort of played out on his Telegram channel, um, which ended up reaching about 100,000 followers at its peak. Um, and then in June 2021, when it was getting like very extreme, the stuff that Attila Hildman was posting, um, suddenly his content was no longer visible inside the Telegram app if you were using an Apple or Google phone to access it. So that meant you could see it on the, on the Telegram desktop app, but not through your phone. So at the time, Apple and Google denied that they had the technical ability to do this. And that started prompting speculation that actually what was going on was the tech companies had been kind of lobbying Telegram behind the scenes, that they had a kind of direct channel to the Apple, to its management. So this hasn't been confirmed by the companies themselves. None of the companies responded when I reached out to them for comment. Um, But the theory is that Telegram is able to tell what device you're using when you access the app. And Google and Apple were able to pressure Telegram into blocking Attila Hildman's content from people using their devices. This is something that already happens for porn channels, for example. So if you're using an iPhone, you can't view porn content on the Telegram app. You'd have to look at it on the desktop. So, But the German government asking Google or Apple to kind of step in uh, to regulate all extremist content or all coronavirus extremist content is quite a big escalation. So... A lawyer I spoke to for the piece described this as kind of a symptom of helplessness, which I thought was an interesting phrase. So this is essentially a last resort option. And if the government was to rely on this tactic, it essentially means that national law can only be implemented if it coincides with an app to store's terms of service, which is a bit mad. Mm. It's interesting that they've gone, right, you've sorted out a B-list celebrity, you've de-radicalised him, let's now get you to do the entire of Telegram. Why not? I mean, I suppose the advantage here is that everyone does know Google's and Apple's HQ and they probably answer the phone. So I guess that helps on the communication front of what the German government wants them to do. In your piece, experts were saying, though, that it doesn't look like too powerful a move for major governments to go to other tech companies to implement their regulation Um, But I suppose in this case, the end justifies the means for the German government. However, it also sends a very interesting message to other tech companies, right? Because they're being told to comply with Germany's hate speech and content moderation efforts. And they're looking at the way things have played out with Telegram. And perhaps, I mean, it it wouldn't be surprising. I wonder if they're thinking, hey, if you don't answer the phone, if you don't answer the letters, don't open the mail, (laughs) um, they're not really going to be able to do anything about it, right? 
Yeah, so I think it has this possibility of setting a really dangerous precedent. So Telegram has a very strong libertarian ethos, so it doesn't share data with governments. It's quite proud of that. It has very, very light touch moderation on its platform. But if they're able to just ignore government legislation in a country like Germany, where it has millions of users, that can essentially just kind of show how powerless governments are against these, these big platforms that shape how people act in real life. So even if some people find that comforting from a free expression point of view, it would mark a big shift in kind of the way governments and tech platforms, their relationship in Europe. Uh, So for all the criticism that has been thrown at Facebook, YouTube and Twitter for content moderation, they generally do collaborate with governments, even if they drag if they drag their feet a bit. Um, however, Germany is also seeing signs that that is changing too. So when Germany, Germany introduced a new version of the Next DG on February 1st, and the idea behind that is it would require social media sites to not only delete that illegal content, swastikas, death threats, but also send the personal information of the people posting it, including their IP address, to German police. So none of the social medias, not Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, have signed up to this new system. And they don't seem hugely concerned about the consequences. So I think there is a lot riding on this battle with Telegram. But interestingly, since the story we published went out yesterday, there's a development this morning. Germany's interior minister said she finally made contact with Telegram's management. Correct. And, uh, and finally, and, and apparently Telegram declared their greatest possible willingness to cooperate, uh, whatever that means. So according to the Interior Ministry, the contact was made via an email address provided by Google, which is an interesting element. So it does seem like Google are still kind of a mediator in this ongoing saga. Morgan, what do you think the end game is here we've seen for a number of years that germany is maybe out ahead of other countries in europe with the way that it tries to get big technology platforms to moderate content that um that is carried on their platforms where's this going to end up because it feels like big tech's digging its heels in yet to find out if telegram will even get back in touch with german authorities where does this go I feel like it's, it's quite interesting because Germany is one country that has a really clear idea that free expression has its limits. And obviously that's, that's related to its history. It doesn't, it doesn't believe you can say anything at all. And so that's kind of clashing with uh, what tech platforms want, even kind of Facebook, the more mainstream ones. So we're seeing that German regulation is getting tougher and tougher. And obviously tech platforms are worried about where that's going to end up. So it's kind of this this battle, like who's more powerful, who has more influence over kind of public discourse. So I feel like my personal opinion is that for the, the German government has to win this battle. If it backs down now, they're going to look quite weak. And especially for a new coalition government, it's quite important that that doesn't happen when it's such like a big, a big national issue. But I, I mean, I imagine there's going to be a lot of backroom negotiations, especially with this new next DG law. The German Justice Ministry, I think, has sort of let all these companies file lawsuits and said that they don't have to worry about it until those lawsuits are 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 done or dealt with. So I think it's going to be an issue for a long time. We're going to see a clashing of heads for a while. Absolutely. And broadly speaking, as countries around the world look to grapple with the power of these major technology platforms, there are lessons to be learned from countries that look at how other countries are doing things differently, right? So regulation that's being passed in France might be applicable to 
um, to politicians looking to grapple with big tech in the United States or the UK or South Korea. We're seeing lots of different approaches to these various problems that major technology platforms are presenting. And, and maybe in the mix, there'll be some interesting ideas that will end up becoming broadly applied. Yeah, and I think, but also what's interesting about Germany is that it's, it's next GG law has kind of been used as a pretext for more kind of authoritarian countries to crack down on platforms. But for kind of, I mean, we assume that Germany is doing it right because it's a European country and, and obviously their history explains it. But it gets a bit more complicated when you have kind of next GG laws being introduced in, in countries where people aren't so, don't have so much faith in the democracy in place there. So, I mean, Germany's sort of getting into uncharted territory with this hate speech law. So it'd be interesting to see what parts of it are picked up in different parts of the world. Absolutely. If you want to get in touch about that story, it's podcast.wired.co.uk and we'll include a link to the full story in the show notes. You probably hear and read about ransomware attacks all the time, but a lot of those stories miss a crucial element who's behind the attacks. In recent months, ransomware has crippled factories, power grids, hospitals, and just this week, as Matt mentioned at the top of the show, snack snack food giant KP was hit by an attack that could lead to a shortage in nuts and crisps. And also this week, Matt Burgess, you reported a story that does something a little bit unusual. It unmasks, at least a little bit, the people doing the hacking. Yeah, so let me take you back to the Ridgeview Medical Centre in Minnesota on October the 24th, 2020. Um, The medical centre put out a Facebook post warning patients about an ongoing disruption to its computer networks. Uh, The medical centre said its phones were down as well as uh, computers. A fire volunteer run fire department subsequently said that ambulances were being diverted to other hospitals. While the patients and staff were safe, it was still a serious issue. And it quickly became clear that the disruption wasn't actually a technical glitch. In fact, it seemed to be a ransomware attack carried out by one of Russia's most notorious gangs. And you know this, Matt, because you've seen the messages that the criminal gang was sending as they carried out this and other attacks. And This isn't the sort of detail that we see every day. There are plenty of stories about the effect of ransomware attacks, but very, very few about the cause. So what did you find out when you peered behind the curtain? You see how fast hospitals and centres reply. Answers from the rest take days and the ridge immediately answer flew in. That was one message from Target, who is a or is the online handle of a key member of the Russia-linked malware gang called TrickBot. And as this character typed, uh, he and his colleagues were in the middle of a huge wave of ransomware attacks across the UK. Their aim was to make a quick buck, essentially, by putting hospitals under pressure from COVID-19 and, uh, sorry, putting hospitals who are under pressure from COVID-19 out of action and giving them, essentially, uh, no choice but to pay up quickly. And Target said in those messages that the group had a list of 428 US hospitals that they wanted to go after and attack in the coming days. Um, The series of attacks prompted sort of urgent warnings from federal agencies, including uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the US, and as well as the FBI. Um, And in a subsequent message, Target said, fuck clinics in the USA this week. They told their colleagues to start attacking them. There's going to be a panic. Now, having trawled through all of these messages, other than those very dramatic things that you've pulled out there, 
what stood out for you in what you saw? So we had sort of sight of hundreds of messages but sent between the inner circle of this TrickBot group. And these messages were sent in the summer and autumn of 2020 and give a bit of an insight into how TrickBot operates. And just as a quick recap, Trick. TrickBot is essentially a piece of malware that evolved from uh, a banking trojan called Diet around the end of 2015. And since then, the, that piece of malware has evolved into a sort of wider hacking tool that's used as a first stage of attack. So the TrickBot malware can infect machines. And then once attackers are in a system, they can then deploy ransomware or collect data as a further uh, deployment of their software. But TrickBot is also the wider group that runs this malware and develops it. Um, and there's a bunch of affiliations between uh, the TrickBot group and the uh, other uh, types of ransomware and things that exist out there and they're all very closely linked and I spent a lot of time looking and reading through these messages from the group and I guess really what struck me was that mostly there's a, just a normality to these messages uh, so if you think about how you might talk to your colleagues on Slack or Teams or anything like that uh, online it's it's a bit like that really but the things that they're dealing with are criminal acts that can cause a lot of damage and uh, a huge amount of disruption in life and the members of the group really just talk um, through these things like like they're talking about anything else there's just really a sort of normality to it that is very much like you just you you're reading it and you sort of uh, become a little bit detached from what they're actually saying because it just seems so uh, sort of commonplace and this is just the attitude that they take. They're not like, they they obviously understand that the acts that they're doing are criminal acts They're and there could be a lot of damage uh, to people, uh, whether it's that's in terms of like how organisations run or even if you're looking at hospitals, potentially impacting people's care and, and, and health uh, consequences. So they know that these things are very damaging, but actually um, it, that's not really reflected too much in these overall messages it's just a bit of like we're just doing our job sort of thing talking about how the work is uh, unfolding and sort of like talking through some of the process and the technical details and actually it's just like bizarre to read this and and then think about the consequences that it's having in the real world and that boringness is kind of reflected in the structure of the organization which is something else that you've gleaned a little bit more detail um, by looking through these messages. There are managers, there are coders, they work on projects, they talk through technical problems. There's even a CEO-like figure who runs everything. It's all weirdly mundane, isn't it? There's around... Uh... A core team really at the sort of heart of TrickBot, which potentially has up to 100 or 400 different employees uh, or affiliates sort of spread around uh, Russia and various regions. And within that sort of like heart uh, core group, there's about six people. Uh, and this is according to the documents that we reviewed and also security experts who track the group. Um, there is, if you want to use uh, like CEO as a term, uh, if you're thinking about as in a business structure, there is a character who goes by the name called Stern. Uh, who is uh, this CEO sort of role and they communicate really with other members who are core to the group so uh, Alex Holden who is a security researcher who has studied the group and has seen some of its inner workings uh, says that Stern does not really get into the technical technical side of the uh, malware or ransomware operations um, and, and Alex said that Stern wants reports he wants more communication between team members and he wants to make high level decisions about how the group is operating and this Stern character was in 
involved in discussions in the summer of 2020 that we saw about expanding the group. Um, they're believed to be based in Russia uh, and in the second biggest city, St. Petersburg. Uh, and in these messages, uh, Target was saying to Stern, there'll be six offices for sure and 50 to 80 people by the end of September. Um, and at this time, the group was really spending money on three different areas. They said that there were two offices, one main office and one new office for training were being used for the sort of current operators expenses and expansion. There is a series of hacker offices where 20 plus people worked at the time and they would be used as well as for hacking activity. They would be used for interviews, for recruitment, uh, for equipment, servers and hiring. And finally, the third area that they were spending money on was there would be an office for programmers and their equipment. Um, and Target said that a good team leader has already been hired uh, and he will help to gather this programmer's team. And they continued that I'm sure that everything will pay off. So I'm not nervous. And they're not just well organized in terms of their structure. They're also developing some really advanced hacking tools, which you mentioned at the top. And from the chats that you've seen, a lot of the technical work that's being done is led by a character called Professor. Tell us a little bit more about them and what they do. So Professor oversees much of the ransomware deployment and the actual uh, targeting a business once the once the TrickBot group is inside. Um, and just just to point out that a lot of these handles that we're talking about in this piece, uh, they're the sort of inner uh, handles and, and that the group used to speak to each other very closely. They're not sort of things that uh, you can find them using sort of publicly, openly on the internet. It's stuff, it's their uh, way of communicating with each other. And there could be multiple people behind some of these handles um, and we don't know their real world identities, but it's one of the challenges of, of this area. Uh, but with Professor um, uh, Kimberly Goody, who's a security analyst at the company Mandiant, says that Professor has been linked to the Conci ransomware, which is uh, a very big uh, piece of ransomware that's caused a lot of damage over the last year and they say that professor appears to lead multiple sub teams or multiple team leaders reporting into them um, and overall trickbot seems to be set up in a way that runs like any other office or company the group makes references to senior managers and people who run other teams they have a pipeline set up for development development of new malware and are open to uh, team members saying i have an idea for this new malware development and then somebody else will try and make it a reality and they also hire people like any other business as well so job ads uh, appear on russian language freelancer websites on the open internet uh, and they call for people that can look for vulnerabilities, want to work at a startup and say that most of uh, TrickBot's money, or well, it doesn't say it's TrickBot, um, but it says that uh, the company that they'll be working for, most of their money comes from abroad. Um, and essentially, if you apply to these jobs, you will have an uh, initial screening with a couple of people uh, who will sort of ask a few questions. And then if you're sort of deemed potentially worthy enough, uh, you then move on to technical tests. You have to uh, show that you can uh, have the skills to potentially find the vulnerabilities in software and prove that you can actually do this hacking work, essentially. And these messages that you saw, even though they give us a really interesting insight into the inner workings of this company, they're a couple of years old already, right? But from what we can see from the outside and from security experts that you've spoken to who are observing TrickBot from the outside, this organization is showing no signs of slowing down, right? It's spending huge sums of money on hiring and developing new tools as part of this sort of constant game of cat and mouse between cyber criminals, police, and also companies and other organizations who are trying to keep their systems secure. So what's it up to now? 
So as you said, the messages that I saw were from around 2020, which was around the sort of time that uh, the US Cyber Command, Microsoft and a bunch of other cybersecurities took a lot of TrickBots systems offline. They basically disrupted their uh, their work. Um, but you can sort of get a sense of how sophisticated and prepared the group is generally by the fact that even after they were taken offline uh, and had all their equipment put out of uh, service, they were back online and working a couple of months later, Essentially, they they probably imagined that this sort of thing could happen. They could be disrupted, but had backup systems and stuff in place to be able to uh, just resume working. Um, and now that they're back, they're pretty much back bigger than ever. Um, so IBM Security, uh, I spoke to some of their researchers there who have been tracking the group, and they say that uh, the group has boosted its attacks by around 80% at the end of 2021, and it has been developing its malware in ways that stops security researchers from identifying it. They've bun- built in a bunch of things uh, in recent months that if a security researcher is trying to identify this, actually it will throw up a bunch of problems and uh, stop them from actually analysing this, so making it harder for people to track them. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Alex Holden said that he's seen separate messages from inside the group that claim that they've spent around 20 million US dollars on improving itself in 2021. And he said that uh, this investment essentially has been used for staffing, technology, communications, uh, development of uh, the, the ransomware and malware, and also just the extortion part of the work that they're doing. And essentially, if you think about investing 20 million pounds in your own business to develop new R&D sort of things. Not many companies um, will be investing that much money uh, for at least like small and medium businesses. So they're obviously very much set up in a way where they're not planning on going anywhere. Let's zoom right out because this is part of a far larger story, which is the rise of ransomware gangs, not just in Russia, but around the world, you know, you're mentioning figures in the tens of millions of dollars, but this is a hundreds and hundreds of million dollar industry, as you like, if you like. And as the number of high profile attacks rises, and some targets are resorting to paying huge, huge ransoms to get back control of their systems, law enforcement agencies are left scrambling to try and shut these gangs down. But as you just mentioned, the gangs are getting much better at making what they do undetectable. So, where does this story go next? Yeah, and that's the big question here, really. Um, so for, for years, ransomware gangs have run wild. It's not something we talk about on the podcast too often, but they've targeted thousands of businesses and organizations around the world and largely gone untouched. And a large reason for this is that many of them, them have been based in Russia, or at least have had uh, central sort of uh, people organizing them in Russia. And while they're not necessarily linked to the Russian state or authorities, uh, they may have been able to do their work in a relatively untouched manner manner. Putting it bluntly, the Kremlin has pretty much turned a blind eye to their action because they don't target US, uh, they don't target Russian businesses, uh, they largely target overseas businesses, and there is uh, not an incentive necessarily for the state to to go after them. Um, But really in the last year and a half, two years, particularly with the targeting of hospitals during the pandemic, um, the sort of brazen actions of ransomware groups have become too much. Um, law enforcement and governments around the world have said that ransomware attacks need to stop. Officials in the UK have said that ransomware is the biggest threat to businesses. There's been multiple high-level warnings. It's an issue that's gone to sort of the top of government as well. Uh, and Joe Biden has taken up the mantle with uh, Vladimir Putin himself during discussions between the two in the last few years. Biden has demanded that Putin 
takes action against those actors who are based in Russia. And this diplomacy has sort of worked to some extent. A few weeks ago, the Russian security service, the FSB, arrested 14 members of the Revil ransomware gang. And it was the biggest action against a ransomware gang that's ever happened in Russia. And for many onlookers was a really significant moment because this was the Russian authorities stepping up and taking this action and making these arrests. Um, so it, that could have been a really big moment to show that actually something is going to change here. The diplomacy is working. But equally, with that, those arrests, um, the Revil ransomware group haven't been particularly active in the last few months. They were uh, they were also um, targeted by uh, by others looking to take the group down um, and really haven't been that much of a big player. So even though these arrests were quite symbolic, it could just be they, they do prove to be a symbol, whether people go on and get charged and actually go to jail or on this or uh, ever get extradited to uh, the countries where their cr- crimes have been committed if they've been targeting a US business. That seems very unlikely. So it's one of these things where at least at the the very highest levels of governments, people are taking it seriously and making sort of some change happen. But the longer term impact will be unless these groups are really disrupted completely uh, and dismantled and can't be allowed to operate, they'll still keep on working. And of course, these kinds of operations only work if businesses pay the ransom, right? So is there a way out of this situation as the number of these attacks keeps on rising and their sophistication increases? Is there a way out that looks like countries passing laws that makes it illegal for companies to pay ransom to criminal gangs in this way? Yeah, it's it's a super hard area and one that's probably debated a lot within um, security circles and people that look at ransomware very closely. And uh, with some of the Russian-linked groups, uh, the US has, in in the last few years, had sort of sanctions in place against uh, groups or individual actors that have meant, in theory, that companies hit by a ransomware attack can't pay them. Uh, It would be illegal for them to do so. But there have been stories and reports and uh, suggestions that companies find other ways to go around these types of uh, sanctions and stuff in place. They find an intermediary who can potentially pay so it's not them committing a potentially illegal act and there's some people that say that actually if you if you put a ban entirely on companies being able to pay any ransom uh, anywhere then that could be one way that stops these gangs from being successful really if they're not getting paid if they're not making money from the work that they're doing uh, the criminal acts that they're doing then they're going to stop doing it eventually they'll pivot to doing something else i'm sure because if they're if they are uh, yeah a criminal organization that exists to make money they'll find another way to do it but essentially if you sort of cut off that supply or the ways that they make money then that every single thing that you can do to increase a little bit of friction into that process means that that's a way to tackle them absolutely podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us about Matt's story about ransomware or Morgan's story about Germany versus Telegram and we'll include a link to both stories in the show notes on Matt's story in particular there's loads more detail from the chat logs that he's reviewed it's a really fascinating read 
One email, where we actually got a bunch of emails, but most of them are for Matt Reynolds about his story about gravity energy storage. So we'll get him back on the show next week to respond to those. But we've got one from Paul in London, who writes in that he's been listening to the show for a couple of years, but this is the first time he's plucked up the courage to get in touch. So hello to Paul. He says, our discussion about the lifting of COVID restrictions across Europe recently reminded him of a podcast from a little while back, um, where I think it was a fact that I bought on that the bubonic plague is still endemic making parts of Madagascar. So Paul uh, said that reminded him that um, COVID will be with us in some form or another for a long while yet. There's a cheery note to end the show on. Yes, Morgan. Well, I was actually going to say a non-cheery note, uh, which sort of defeats the point. But um, I was actually reading that the fourth wave of the Spanish flu was actually one of the worst waves, but everyone's just so sick of it by then that they just ignored it and um, kind of just got on with their lives. So... I feel like Paul's right. It's like us now. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Morgan. (laughs) Natasha, do you have anything depressing that you'd like to add? Uh, Apparently, um, Tonga has had to enter into lockdown this morning because uh, COVID travelled in with state aid on planes. So that's depressing. Um, Yeah. Well, in cheerier news, um, the sun has just burst through the clouds and more or less blinded me from uh, where I'm sitting in my home office. So let's end the show uh, before I cook. Thank you very much for listening, uh, as ever. We'll be back same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.